Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright, Constable, and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to surety claims professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. Here is your host, Michael Stover. Well, welcome everyone to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety and Fidelity Law Group here at Wright Constable Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. As always, uh, we like to open up our episodes with a big thank you to everyone for your support of Surety Today. We ask that you um, pass along our contact information to any colleagues uh, who you think may be interested in calling in or checking out one of the podcasts. We also ask that you like and or share our Surety Today posts on social media platforms. When you do that, it lets uh, all the Surety folks that are connected with you see the post so they can join in. And I'd say every every month we get several people, you know, contacting us to add so and so to the list so that they get, you know, they get the the notices. So we appreciate you doing that, helping us out. Remember, you can listen to any one or all of our prior 77 episodes of Surety Today anytime, anywhere, from any one of our multiple platforms. Um, Surety Today page on our website at wcslaw.com as a podcast at Spotify, Amazon, Apple, Stitcher, Podbean. Just search for Surety Today and on our micro site at suretytoday.net. Uh, as of today, we had just over 8,465 downloads of our podcast, so that's good. As always, uh, we've muted the line during the presentation to avoid any background noise, and we'll unmute the line at the end for any questions. Today, we're going to talk about federal enclaves and the supremacy clause, uh, what they are, why they might matter, what to do if you find yourself dealing with one. Um, so with that, let's just get started. Um, it's estimated, we'll start with the, with the uh, federal enclaves first. It's estimated that uh, the United States federal government owns approximately 30% of all available land in the country. Approximately 7% of that 30% uh, is imbued with federal enclave status. And that equates to about 5,000 individual sites that are spread throughout the country. A federal enclave is land held by and under the control of the federal government that was given, deeded, or ceded to the federal government by a state. Stated differently, a federal enclave is an area over which the federal government has assumed exclusive legislative jurisdiction through the application of the U.S. Constitution. These enclaves are essentially you know, islands of federally controlled land within a state and include such things as, you know, of course, military bases, some uh, federal research facilities and labs, NASA facilities, certain national parks, post offices, the Pentagon, of course, federal courthouses and, and other places uh, like that. So when, when Congress exercises exclusive jurisdiction over federal enclaves, it, it, it essentially acts as a state government with total legislative, executive, and judicial power over the, the confines of the, of the enclave. So, but before we, we get too far into the details about what a federal enclave is, let's talk about why it might matter. 
So my law partner, Rich Pledger, and I had a, a case earlier this year that involved a project that was located on the grounds of the Pentagon. In our case, uh, there was a question about the, the bonded principal not being a, a licensed contractor in Virginia, not registered to do business in the state of Virginia, uh, where the Pentagon is located. And there was a choice of law question based on the language of the subcontract. So what, what law was going to apply? The fact that the Pentagon uh, is a federal enclave had to be considered in order to address these issues because a federal enclave property can literally change the laws that might otherwise apply. So as I'll explain in more detail later, basically when a, when a piece of land or building is ceded to the federal government, with some exceptions, the state law in existence at the time of the transfer becomes the applicable law of the federal enclave. After the transfer, while the surrounding state law continues to expand and evolve outside of the enclave, over the ensuing years, the law within the confines of the enclave remains the same, uh, except where it's been modified by subsequent federal law. So in our, our Pentagon case, the fact that the, the project work was being done uh, on a federal enclave meant that the principal was not required to comply with Virginia's licensing, licensing and corporate registration statutes because the work was only being performed within the enclave. To determine the, the choice of law issue, a, a federal court would ordinarily look to the law of the forum jurisdiction and, and its choice of law rules. In our case, we were pending in Virginia. But because the, the Pentagon is a federal enclave, the court had to look to the federal law and Virginia laws that existed at the time of the transfer of the Pentagon land, which was in the 1940s. So not, not current Virginia law. Uh, I've also have another matter pending in Maryland where the project is located at the Aberdeen Proving Grounds, a military facility located in Maryland. That's where they cook up all the um, you know, terrible uh, bioweapons and that kind of stuff. And the property has been held to be a federal enclave over there at the Aberdeen. And in fact, I've had five different surety claims arising out of that Aberdeen Proving Grounds area over the years. So even in my little corner of the country, the federal enclave issue has uh, arisen fairly regularly. And so here, here's a hypothetical example of why you know it, it can matter to you. So uh, you know you, you you can have a situation where a, a claimant is contending that. The principal is in breach of contract because it did not comply with the state's wage and hour laws or safety regulations or some other modern statute and the claimant is asserting a claim against the bond but if the, the bonded project is on a federal enclave which became an enclave back in the 1930s or 40s or even further back in the 1800s uh, those modern statutes laws and regulations won't apply because they didn't exist at the time of the transfer. And so they don't exist within the enclave property. And so therefore they can't form the basis of a cause of action. Uh, so there's no cognizable breach by the principal in that example, no basis for the claim. So here's a, a, an actual example. In the case of Dunpar Engineered Form Company versus Vanham Construction out of uh, Kansas, the surety was granted summary judgment because the claimant would not state a claim against the payment bond under applicable federal enclave law. Hanover issued the bonds uh, for its uh, principal Vanham Construction, a subcontractor on the project. Vanham hired a sub uh, subcontractor who also hired a sub subcontractor. This was Dunpar, the, the claim, claimant. Dunpar claimed it was not paid and filed suit. The subcontract payment bond defined claimant 
as an individual or entity having a direct contract with the principal to furnish labor materials or equipment for use in the performance of the subcontract, or, and this was the, the key language, any individual or entity having valid lien rights, which may be asserted in the jurisdiction where the project is located. Now clearly Dunpar, you know, didn't have a direct contract with Vanham. It was a sub-sub to a sub. So uh, the question was whether Dunpar had any lien rights in the jurisdiction where the project was located. So the project at issue was located on Fort Riley in Kansas, which is a federal enclave under the federal government's exclusive jurisdiction. Thus, federal law dictates whether Dunpar qualifies as an entity having valid lien rights, which may be asserted in, in the federal enclave of, of Fort Riley. So the court observed that while mechanics lien rights provide protection from non-payment for contractors and subcontractors who work on private property, federal law does not provide lien rights for contractors and subcontractors who work on federal land or buildings. The court held that the language in the bond was clear and unambiguous, and Dunpar must have lien rights that may be asserted under federal law in the jurisdiction where the project was located. The court stated, since there are no federal lien rights for Dunpar to assert, Dunpar does not qualify as a claimant. Since Dunpar is not a claimant, summary judgment was directed for Hanover. So you can see as a practical example there of how, you know, knowing that you're on the federal enclave and knowing, you know, what the law is there versus the, what the contract required in that example. But over the years, um, you know, there have been other examples, uh, not, not, not necessarily in the surety realm, but um, uh, defendants have successfully used, uh, when you do the research, you'll see the federal enclave doctrine uh, to dismiss a variety of state law claims, including, you know, claims based on um, uh, state statutes such as wage and hour laws, uh, state worker safety laws regulations, state consumer protection statutes, as well as claims alleging wrongful discharge and personal injury. Additionally, courts uh, have considered the federal enclave doctrine in relation to many common law claims, you know, including the breach of contract, unjust enrichment, intentional infliction of emotional distress, good faith, theory of good faith and fair dealing, quantum merit, all these kinds of things have come up in the context uh, of the federal enclave doctrine. So there's, there's lots of uh, cases out there dealing with these issues and whether or not the claim can, you know, can proceed in, in, in light of the federal enclave. So uh, even, even judge-made rules such as, you know, the discovery rule, for example, in the, in the context of statute of limitations analysis can be subject to the federal enclave, enclave doctrine because discovery rule was really more of a recent uh, uh, creation by courts. And, and so if you, if the property was transferred to a federal enclave status, you know, earlier in the century, then, um, you know, then it's not going to be applicable. So as a claims handler, if, if you're, you know, if you bonded a project, if you're bonded projects on a federal enclave, it's important to understand how the status can affect your understanding and handling of the case and ensure that the, the correct law is being applied to the claims decision that you're making. So in, in essence, I guess it's helpful to think of it this way, that the federal enclave doctrine functions much like a choice of law provision. You, you have to consider it in order to determine what law applies. So let's, um, let's look more closely at, at what the federal enclave doctrine is. The enclave clause is found at Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17 of the United States Constitution, and it grants the United States exclusive legislative jurisdiction over any parcel of land ceded by a state to the federal government 
for the erection of forts, magazines, arsenals, dockyards, and other needful buildings. The phrase exclusive legislative jurisdiction has been held to mean exclusive jurisdiction, meaning that the federal government has complete uh, control of that area. The Supreme Court has examined uh, the reach of the enclave clause's reference to the phrase other needful buildings in various cases and has made clear that the phrase uh, as used in the clause encompasses such things as waterway locks, dams, federal courts, custom houses, post office, and quote, whatever other structures are found to be necessary in the performance of the functions of the federal government, unquote. So it's pretty broad application. Uh, further, the Supreme Court has held that the enclave clause itself is not to be strictly or narrowly construed when determining what property falls within its purview. Uh, to establish a federal enclave wherein the federal government has that exclusive jurisdiction requires uh, certain conditions. So first, the United States must acquire the land through purchase or cession from a state for a purpose recognized in the enclave clause. Uh, two, the state legislature must consent to the jurisdiction of the federal government. And three, a formal acceptance by the federal government must be provided for land acquired after 1940. This last condition about uh, formal acceptance was added uh, after 1940 and creates a bit of an issue in the analysis because prior to 1940, formal acceptance was not required. So when you're, you're looking at this issue and the, the transfer occurred prior to 1940, you don't need to find uh, acceptance. It's important to note that federal enclave jurisdiction does not require that any party to the suit be a federal employee or a federal officer or affiliated with the government or that substantive federal laws be at issue in the case. Thus, you can have a, a dispute between two private parties but if the dispute centers on enclave property, the enclave doctrine will apply. Further, courts have held that exclusive uh, federal jurisdiction was not lost by the government's lease of property for commercial purposes within an enclave. So I think there was one, there was a, a public uh, park, I think it was Yosemite National Park, and there was a, a case involving a, a hotel the government had leased, you know, had leased a parcel of land to, to a, um, a private party to to create a hotel there and the enclave status still applies to the issues that arose in, you know in that case uh, but let's um there are a couple distinguishing uh features here that we've got to got to make note of when we're talking about uh, federal enclaves first federal enclaves are to be distinguished from federal territories and possessions which include territories like puerto rico or the united states virgin islands uh, guam american samoa and a few others these territories are governed under separate law. Second, the Supreme Court has emphasized the difference between land uh, ceded uh, by a state to the federal government and land that's been acquired by the federal government through a taking. So the, the court noted that in the event that the United States takes land from a state through the federal sovereign's right of eminent domain, the federal government's legislative jurisdiction over the property remains dependent upon session by the state. In other words, state laws apply within an area taken by the federal government via eminent domain, unless the state affirmatively cedes the land to the United States, either at the time of or after the taking. Third, it's, it's not unusual for the United States to own lands within a state, which are set apart and used for general public purposes. Such ownership and, and use by the federal government without more does not withdraw the lands from the jurisdiction of the state. 
such lands remain part of the state's territory and within the operation of the state's laws, except that the state cannot affect the title of the United States or interfere with its right of disposal. So the, the enclave clause governs only those properties where the United States acquires land with the consent of the legislature of the state for the purposes described in the enclave clause. And as I mentioned, in 1940, Congress enacted a statute which provides that the federal government is not required to obtain exclusive jurisdiction over all lands that it acquires. And that when the federal government accepts land secured uh, or ceded from a state, it must file a formal acceptance of jurisdiction. The purpose of that uh, statute was to give broad discretion to the federal government to obtain only the necessary jurisdiction that it desired. So uh, what, let's look at the issue of what law applies within the enclave. We talked about it briefly at the beginning. Historically, Congress um, provided no civil laws to, to govern enclaves. That's, you got the enclave clause, but they, don't, they didn't do anything with it. So in 1885, the Supreme Court held that uh, the, the international law rule applied. So that, that rule provides that when a territory is transferred from one government to another, such as when the federal enclave is ceded from a state to the federal government, existing laws for the protection of private rights continue in force until abrogated or changed by the new government. Thus the rule was created by the Supreme Court for federal enclaves that the law of the state as it existed at the time of the transfer continues to apply within the enclave unless and until changed by the federal government. This includes the state's common law rules in effect at the time of session. Under this rule, the status quo at the time of the federal enclave becomes an enclave is maintained no matter how much time has passed since the creation of the enclave unless Congress acts to change the status quo. That's why when you're dealing with a federal enclave situation, you need to figure out, well, when did the transfer occur? And then determine, well, what was the state law at the time of that transfer? And we had to do that when we were looking at the Pentagon issue. Uh, there is uh, one caveat to the rule of the applicability of existing state law. Uh, the Supreme Court has made clear that if the enforcement of a pre-existing state law would conflict with the carrying out of a national purpose, then the state law must be held invalid within the enclave. Now, Congress, of course, gradually uh, began to authorize the enforcement of, of some state laws on federal enclaves. Thus, in 1928, Congress made applicable to federal enclaves state laws governing wrongful death and personal injuries. In the late 30s, under the Buck Act, Congress uh, authorized states to apply their state taxes on fuel, income, sales, and use and state laws governing workers' comp and unemployment. Subsequently, Congress enacted the so-called federal enclave laws, which are a group of statutes that permits the federal courts to serve as a forum for the prosecution of certain crimes when they occur within a federal enclave. So they, these laws define you know, things like arson and assault and maiming, theft, that kind of stuff, uh, to, to, to allow for the flexibility to, to charge people for crimes on an enclave. Additionally, the, the Assimilative Crimes Act was enacted, which permits a federal court to borrow a state's criminal laws where there is no federal law prescribing an offense committed on an enclave within that state. The, uh, the, the act permits the federal court then to serve as the forum for the prosecution. But there really hasn't been much um, headway made into uh, specific civil laws for, uh, uh, for enclave properties, and particularly laws relating to you know, construction, things that, that sureties would be interested in. Um, so in analyzing uh, federal enclave issues, one must determine what the terms of the state's 
ceding of the land were. So the Supreme Court has acknowledged that a state is free to qualify its session by reservations, not inconsistent with the governmental uses. So obviously, if you're ceding land, uh, you know, and the, and the government's going to use it as a military base, you can't say, well, it, we cede it, but you can't use it as a military base. I mean, you know, that, that, that kind of thing. The court stated if lands are otherwise acquired and jurisdiction is ceded by the state to the United States, the terms of the session to the extent that they may be lawfully prescribed, that is consistently with the carrying out of the purpose of the acquisition, determine the extent of the federal jurisdiction. An example of a, a broad session statute can be found in Louisiana, where uh, their statute simply provides the United States in accordance with the seventh clause, eighth section of the first article of the Constitution, may acquire and occupy any land in Louisiana required for the purposes of the federal government. The United States shall have exclusive jurisdiction over the property during the time period that the United States is the owner or lessee of the property. So that's a that's a you know pretty broad uh, session uh, consent. Common reservations of power in state session statutes include the authority to collect state taxes and uh, serve criminal and civil process within an enclave. Reservations uh, also may be much broader, preserving a wider range of state powers. For example, the Oklahoma session statute indicates that the United States is being ceded full civil criminal jurisdiction with a concurrent jurisdiction reserved to the states. So that really kind of throws the whole uh, federal enclave doctrine on its head. And basically, you, in that situation, the state laws will continue to apply because of the concurrency of the jurisdiction. In addition, when, when analyzing the federal enclave issues, one must also determine if the federal government has authorized applicability of state law within the enclave after the transfer. So as we discussed a moment ago over time, you know, Congress has authorized a variety of laws to be applicable uh, within the enclave. The Supreme Court has recognized that a state law or regulation enacted post-session will apply within an enclave if Congress has authorized the enforcement of that state law or regulation. However, any federal legislation addressing the applicability of laws within an enclave must demonstrate the clear and unambiguous intent of Congress to affect the law within the enclave. So there's there's examples in the research, you know, of the like the Clean Air Act says that the, the government would have to follow state laws regarding clean air issues, but the, the court held in that case it wasn't a significant enough, um, you know, de deference to the state law to change enclave law. So you could see it's got to be clear and unambiguous. So here's uh, an example of, of the, you know, of paying attention to how the, the land was seeded. Uh, it's sort of a unique example and, 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 and shows the importance of how to, to figure this all out. It involves uh, land in Hickam Air Force Base in Hawaii, the, the, I can't say, the Kalakala Nui Inc. versus Actus Lend Lease, uh, the plaintiff's common law claims for breach of contract, breach of you know, duty of good faith, fair dealing, all these uh, common law actions uh, survived the defendant's motion to dismiss under the federal enclave doctrine because federal law granted Hawaii concurrent jurisdiction over even military bases within the state for all purposes not inconsistent with federal purposes. So the Federal Admission Act, which transformed Hawaii from a, you know, a territory to a state, provides that Congress has exclusive legislative authority over military bases in Hawaii, but also provides that federal jurisdiction shall not prevent Hawaii from exercising over or upon such lands concurrently with the United States, any jurisdiction whatsoever 
which it would have in the absence of such reservation of authority by the federal government and which is consistent with the laws here enacted by Congress, et cetera. So you have a, a sort of a unique situation there with the way Ohio, uh, with the way Hawaii became uh, part of the states, and um, and and that's the, the importance of looking at well what is what is the um, the terms under which the consent was was granted. So in that case, um, the defendant offered no authority suggesting that the plaintiff's common law claims that were brought against the contractor on the on the Hickam Air Force Base were inconsistent with federal purposes. Therefore. The court rejected the federal enclave defense and concluded the claims could go forward. The case points out you know, the importance of the terms of, like I said, but also that the burden of proof on the issue may rest with the party asserting the enclave doctrine. So you got to be uh, aware of that. There's one aspect of the of federal enclave status that, um, that might have significance for the surety as a procedural matter. As everyone knows, the two primary bases for federal courts to acquire jurisdiction are diversity and federal question. In diversity, all of the defendants must be citizens of a different state than the plaintiff. Thus, if Clark Construction is a Maryland corporation and the surety is a Maryland corporation, uh, there, would, there would not be diversity. Federal question jurisdiction, on the other hand, means that the case must involve an issue of federal law. Best example of federal question jurisdiction and surety would be the Miller Act. If you have federal question jurisdiction, then diversity becomes irrelevant. Uh, in, 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 if a case involves a federal enclave, then it's important that the federal question jurisdiction may exist simply by virtue of the fact that the case relates to an enclave. Thus, if a surety is sued in state court over a project on a, on a federal enclave, the case could be removed to federal court regardless of diversity. The Fifth Circuit in Mater versus Hawley uh, held that state laws in existence at the time of the session are converted into federal laws within the enclave. Therefore, the Mater court concluded that federal question jurisdiction exists over matters arising on a federal enclave that center on a claim based on a pre-session state law. Most courts um, that have considered the issue have followed the Mater Court's reasoning, noting that state laws in existence at the time, uh, which do not conflict with federal purposes, are transformed into federal laws within the enclave. A minority of courts uh, have reached the opposite conclusion. So in most jurisdictions, it's better to litigate in a federal court than state court, and, and federal enclave status might help you get into federal court. So basically, uh, you know, how do you apply the doctrine? At the outset, the surety must, as I said, carefully consider uh, where the acts that form the basis of a state or common law claim arose. If the area in question is within a federal enclave, the surety must determine when the area was ceded to the federal government and compare that date to the date on which the state law underlying the claim was enacted. In a matter uh, raising a common law claim, the surety must determine when the state courts recognized the common law cause of action at issue. If the state or common law claim was already in existence on the date of session, then the federal enclave doctrine is not likely to be a basis of dismissal of the claim unless the state or common law uh, conflicts with the federal purpose. If a state or um, common law claim came into existence after the area was ceded, then the federal enclave doctrine becomes applicable. In such a case, the surety uh, should carefully examine the terms under which the state ceded the territory to the federal government to determine whether the state has retained jurisdiction over the area of law that will govern the claim. If the session was conditioned upon a broad reservation jurisdiction like we discussed, then the state laws passed after the session um, may apply within the enclave. If the state did not retain such jurisdiction over the substantive area of law at issue, then litigants should examine federal law to determine whether Congress 
authorized state regulation within state enclaves of the area of the law at issue. So that's the law of federal enclaves. And real quick, we, we don't have a lot of time left. We'll talk about the supremacy clause. Um, so the supremacy clause of the Constitution can come into play on federal projects, regardless of whether the project is on a federal enclave or not. Um, and you start the analysis by looking at the doctrine of preemption. The Supreme Court has interpreted the doctrine of preemption to mean that the supremacy clause of the United States Constitution, Article 6, Clause 2, invalidates state laws that interfere with or are contrary to federal law. Uh, when it is argued that a state law is preempted by a federal law, the focus of analysis is typically upon congressional intent. Congressional intent is primarily discerned from the language of the preemption statute and the uh, statutory framework surrounding it. Also relevant is the structure and purpose of the statute as a whole um, and, and the surrounding statutory scheme and its effect on business and consumers and the law, et cetera. But there are two ways in which preemption may be accomplished. It's either by express or Im implication. In turn, there are two types of implied preemption. There's field preemption and conflict preemption. Implied field preemption occurs when the scheme of the federal regulation is so pervasive, you know, that it reasonably, uh, the Congress left no room for the states to supplement it. Implied conflict preemption occurs where the, the compliance with both federal and state regulations is physically impossible, or where the state regulation is an obstacle to the accomplishment or execution of congressional objectives. So for this discussion, we'll, we'll focus on the implied conflict preemption. Uh, in conventional conflict preemption principles require preemption where state law stands as an obstacle to the accomplishment and execution of the full purposes and objectives of Congress. Stated concisely, state laws are preempted when they would upset federal legislative choices. Unlike other preemption analysis, under an implied conflict preemption analysis, federal statutory or policy language uh, explicitly signaling an intent to preempt the state law is not necessary. Throughout the years, the Supreme Court has established that state laws, rules, and regulations that conflict with or interfere with procurement laws and regulations by interfering with federal contractors can result in the state laws being deemed preempted, preempted and unenforceable. Um, and so uh, this has come up in a number of cases over time where you have, you know, the federal government uh, hires a contractor to do work and then the state comes in and says, well, that contractor is not properly licensed. They're not, they're not a, a licensed contractor in the state or they don't have, you know, this license or that license for whatever the issues are. And the Supreme Court has come in and said, no, you know, the federal government has a process and the procurement laws for how it chooses its contractors and the state can't come in to that and say, well, and, you know, and override the federal government. The federal government is going to, in fact, override the state rules. And, and you can have that situation where a contractor is not registered to do business, not a licensed contractor, but still hired for a federal government project and can still perform the work. Uh, and, and the court, again, is just focused on, you know, the fact that you can't have a situation where the states can come in with their rules and regulations and derail the federal government's efforts uh, with what it's doing. And so there's a number of cases there that you can look to if you have that situation where, um, you know, where uh, your principal is is uh, performing work and the allegations made that they're not, um, you know, they're not properly licensed. All right, so I see we are at our time and I'm gonna um, uh, do the closing real quick and then open up the line. So uh, I wanna let everybody know the next edition of Surety Today will be on Monday, January 9th. 
1230, of course. If I don't see you or talk to you before then, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and Happy New Year to all. Um, an upcoming event uh, in January, of course, is the ABA FSLC Midwinter Meeting, which will be held in Washington, D.C. on uh, January 18th through the 20th. Our own uh, Cindy Rogers Ware, Rich Pledger, and George Backrack will be in attendance. Again, thank you to everyone for um, joining me today, and I will try to unmute the line here. Prince is now in talk mode. All right. The line has been opened, and I will entertain any questions that I have the answers for. Anyone? All right. I apologize. Uh, apparently, last last month uh, there was some technical difficulties getting the call started, and, uh, and and I appreciate those who stuck with it and stayed on the call. But I apologize again for that. All right. With that, uh, with no questions, I guess we're done. I will talk with everybody Great. in January Great topic. next year. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety Today. Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable, and Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety-today.